Well, good morning, everybody. Wow, got a hot mic here. Hot mic. Um, one thing I was just asked to mention that um, thanks to everybody who is willing to come or uh, to stay uh, for not only the family meeting but also to help with moving stuff down to the Catonsville facility. Uh, if you uh, are unable to help with that today, um, if you could vacate the parking lot as, as quickly as possible just so that we can make room for the moving truck and things like that, that would be lovely. Uh, please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Uh, here's my, my uh, hat that, um, you know, what did Amy, what did you say, babe? Hand it, yeah, personal, you know, this is an authentic Amy Miller hat, and I'm, and I'm going to wear it at least for the next 10 seconds. Well, I also say that I, I'm also got, uh, this is the first time that I've ever wore boots to preach, which is pretty cool, because we're going to be doing the move. These boots were made for preaching. Okay. So I, I'm thinking this morning, I'm, I'm glad Chris West is here, because I'm thinking this morning of, of like um, a sort of meeting in the air. Uh, we've signed up for the trip, we've accepted the challenge, we've boarded an airplane, and just moments ago we were flying high, we were comfortable, with no thoughts of doing anything radical or dangerous. Then we remembered that we signed up to skydive, and to do that we need to actually pre be prepared to jump out of the plane. So my apologies to anyone like, like Chris who actually has jumped out of an airplane um, because I, I definitely have not. Uh, but this, this analogy of, of skydiving has kind of been working on me these past few weeks. Um, we're in this series, Anticipate Advent, a, se a season of anticipation. It's, an, it's a, a season of waiting that, that God's doing something in the world and he has done something in the world. And there's that sense of it being now. And there's that sense of it being to come. And that's what we're kind of wrapped up in. Um, we remember that Narnia wisdom. That just because we want to do something good, that doesn't mean that it will be safe. Advent is a season of anticipation. Anticipation that God is about to do something tremendously good in his world. So Kendall got us out of the plane, um, and we were so high up, we felt like that we could see everything. She showed us that God made a good and well-ordered creation with good and well-ordered creatures. Having dominion over these creatures and over this creation was humanity, the ones created in the very image of God himself, but then things went horribly wrong. Humanity got radically off track. Sin attacked this world as the people who were supposed to rule in proper relation with their creator attempted to be the creators themselves. But their creation was warped and not of God. Sure, at times it hinted of that godly image that still sat at our hearts, but often it departed so far from the original plan that personal sin, personal choices of of fornication, of impurities, of jealousy, anger, envy, greed, drunkenness, and the like, gave way to larger pictures of systematic corruption, war, genocide, racism, sexism, oppression, 
oftentimes by the very people who claim to be following their creator God. And then we looked at how the story ends. We see the passing away of this world and the restoration of a new heavens and a new earth. One in which tears and pain and suffering are no more. One in which God himself is in charge and declares all things new. Mourning, crying, pain will be no more and death itself will be conquered because the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. The final chapters of Revelation make it as clear as the crystal clear river of life that sin has no place in God's new creation. The problem is, of course, that each of us fall into at least one or two of those nasty categories that I mentioned before. I know there's a couple of sorcerers in this room. But there is good news. God's kingdom is His alone. And He will set up His rule and reign through His Son, Jesus Christ, who through His death and resurrection, through His cross and empty tomb, has forgiven our sins and provided a new life, an identity rooted not in our past, but in His future. And that's not all. He has declared victory over darkness, victory over the supposed powers of war and corruption and death, and leads us towards God's new world through the power of His holy love. And as the Apostle Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we jumped out of the airplane, and we're in the free fall. And we're trying to figure out how we're going to get where we're going and not end up like a pancake. We need a parachute. So Ron told us last week that we were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Freedom to follow Christ into his kingdom. He's paving the way. We get nowhere through our own efforts. True freedom is responding to God's love with the only appropriate response, showing love to others. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For God's law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do it. Love God and not love others. You can't love others without first tasting the, the love of God. Anyone in this world who actually has tasted authentic love and truth and honor and passion, if it's really from God, it came from God. If they have truly tasted any of this, makes no mistake. If it is real, it has come directly from Christ Jesus. He is the author of love. He is the author of truth. We who are in Christ have not only the obligation to announce that to others, we have the freedom to love the entire world. Now, we've strapped on our parachute and we have to look for a good place to land. We've learned a peculiar thing about God's kingdom. Jesus told us that his kingdom is at hand. It's, it's within your grasp. Maybe you can't see it, but it's there battling against the darkness that's like a splinter in your mind. So in week one, Kendall answered a bit of the what question. 
um, the big picture of creation desperately needing God's restorative hand. And then in week two, Ron answered a bit of the how question, how we will know if we're participating in God's restorative love. Now we need to consider the where and the who. And to do this, we'll need to go to the teaching of Jesus because Jesus was awesome at turning questions of where and who completely on their heads. Where is God's true kingdom? Who is God's true king? Who has true authority? Matthew tells us in chapter 21 that when Jesus was teaching in the temple, the chief priests and elders questioned his authority. They said, you're walking around the temple like you own the place. Who do you think you are, the Messiah? Is that it? I mean, is that it? Do you think, are you saying you're the Messiah? Jesus says in verse 24 in uh, chapter 21, Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or or was it from human origin? And they argued with one another and they said, well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say to us, well, why didn't you believe him? And if we say it's from human origin, well, this crowd looks pretty big, and um, they love John, so we don't want to get in trouble. They regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then Jesus tells three parables that condemn their leadership. All three feature prominently a man and his son. The first is about a man who has two sons, and he tells them both to go out in their family vineyard. The first rudely tells his father to go fly a kite, but later he changes his mind and goes about his work. The second son, though, politely says the right thing and tells his dad that he'll go to work, and then he doesn't actually go. And Jesus asks the leaders, which of the two did the will of the father? And they said, oh, well, the first Truly I tell you, Jesus says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to the kingdom of you. John the Baptist preached repentance, and you didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, those sinners that you so vehemently hate, they responded. Who do you think is doing the will of God? Jesus then follows this up with a parable of the wicked tenants, which is a sermon in its own right. And again, challenges the the Jewish leaders of the day. But then Jesus tells them a third parable. Our text for this morning. That not only connects back to where we've been before, the story of Israel, the prophets, the Jewish leaders of the day, but also the points in the direction of the mission that is to come. Uh, Chapter 22. Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables. Saying, the kingdom of heaven make be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. Now, when we read about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew or the the kingdom of God elsewhere in the Gospels, it's important to know that this is not simply a reference to the afterlife. The point of the story is not, let me tell you about how to get to heaven when you die. Rather, this parable is a story that tells us about God's true saving and sovereign rule on earth now, and then also looks to the future time of consummation 
anticipating that consummation that Kendall spoke about a few weeks ago. The kingdom comes in stages. There is a sense of the happening now, and there's also a sense of the not yet. And Jesus uses this analogy of a wedding banquet in order to talk about that anticipation, the anticipation of that consummation. Picking up in verse 3. He sent his slaves to call who had been in, uh, to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, um, tell those who have been invited, look, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything's ready, come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Well, the king was outraged. Enraged, he sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. So the king sends his servants, his slaves, out to tell the people who had been invited to the wedding banquet that, that the time has come. The kingdom that has been announced... This anticipating of the kingdom which is to come, this great wedding banquet that God is throwing for his son, is beginning, and it's time to come to the party. It's time to move into the next stage of following God towards that rule and reign. The first time the slaves go, uh, we're simply told that they wouldn't come. Um, But the second time, there are, are three fascinating details. First, the slaves provide a truthful yet compelling reason while the invited guests should come. Three, uh, there seems to be patience in this verse, a, a bit more explanation as to why the guests should come. It's not like they had uh, dollar menus back then um, where they could go out and get a quick bite to eat. Food couldn't have been that easy to find and uh, to come by in the first century. The dinner had been prepared. I've already slaughtered the animals. They're on the grill. We got food, drink, good friends, good times. The king is pulling out all the stops for his son, and he's inviting those he cares about, come and get it. And what's their response? Eh. The prophets had warned Israel's leaders of the judgment that was to come. They heard prophets like Hosea lament over the fact that Israel had turned from worship and looked to idols in order to stay in the good graces of whatever superpower had been control of the time. God's people may have strayed, but now he entices them back. He will allure them. He'll speak tenderly tenderly to them. Come back to me. You may not have hurt me the first time. Come back to me. Partake in this celebration meal. I've prepared it for you. Please come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it. They paid no attention. They shrugged their shoulders and went about their own business, which is, of course, far more important than some silly wedding banquet. Even if it is the king that's throwing it for his son, this is disrespecting the king and his son by way of apathy, a lack of enthusiasm or concern. I mean, I don't know how often you all get invited to, like, state dinners at the White House, but, you know, if there was ever some, like, male error as something, and the president actually wanted me to come have dinner with him, I'd clear the calendar, you know. The other night after the, uh, after the event with uh, Fleming Rutledge, which was incredible, awesome, great time, by the way, um, we went and we had drinks uh, with some of the folks that were involved, and, and that was um, intimidating because, you know, 
It was Fleming Rutledge, who just, I'm really looking forward to diving into her stuff. Awesome author. I bought a couple of her books. Really cool. And then there was Michael Gorman, who like, was my New Testament professor and, and Jason's. Incredible, prolific New Testament scholar. Awesome, awesome guy. And then there was uh, David Neff, the editor of Christianity Today, or the former editor, and, and his wife, who was in publishing. And then there's Jason Poling, who's like knocking down denominational walls for Jesus. And, and then there's me. You know, hey, how's it going? Try the buffalo trace, <laughs> which I did. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure why I was at the table, but when I was asked, I wasn't thinking about like going home. Well, I got to go home to Netflix, you know. I said, "Heck yeah! I'm grateful for the opportunity. I just want to listen to the, the conversation that these people have. It's incredible." But a parable it goes deeper than apathy. Those invited guests also disrespected the king with this radical response to his generosity. Not only are they not coming, not only are they deprioritizing time with the king and just shrugging off their shoulders at his invitation, they're going to mistreat and murder the slaves who brought the message. Apparently, this is a point we should miss because it so closely resembles the actions of the wicked tenants from the previous parable. It's hitting the berserk button with this disproportionate response of cruelty. I invite you to a party and you kill my mailman? Again, I'm reminded of the outrageously disobedience, uh, outrageously foolish disobedience that we heard about in Hosea. This speaks of the uh, the sickness of the current situation. Apathy and poor priorities are one thing, but this sort of like wildly inappropriate reaction is what Matthew wants us to have in mind as we consider the next part of the story. The king was enraged. He sends troops, destroys those murderers, and burn their city. You see how this goes back and forth? You want to talk about disproportionate responses? You killed my slave, my servant, I'll kill your, uh, you killed my mailman? I'm going to show you the real consequences of your sin. I'll take your life and burn your city to the ground. Several of the commentators They're quick to point out that verse 7 there about that um, may have been added in reference to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, perhaps. But as I was praying through this passage, it reminded me of Noah. It it reminded me of David. Um, This reminds me of the serious consequences of our sin, especially the sin of people who were supposed to be God's own, his followers, his servant leaders, shepherds to his people. But instead, they ignore the prophets at best and kill them when they said something that might have threatened their authority. We need to leave the death and judgment to God because the consequences of our sins are far greater than we ever realize. Picking up in verse 8, then he said to his slaves, I picture the king sitting there, an empty room. And he says to their slaves, to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited weren't worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. And those slaves went out into the streets and they gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall would be filled with guests. And here's the part of the story that we love, right? And we have good reason to. Because it speaks of the hope that is for every person in this room. 
The former guests may have ignored the king's invitation, but the king is going to go ahead with the party anyway because the banquet never really was for them, was it? It was for his son. You don't want anything to do with me, God says? Well, we'll deal with that in time. For now, I'm sending my servants out into the world and calling them to proclaim to the main streets that all are welcome in the king's house. Tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, murderers, addicts, criminals, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, business owners and employees, conservatives and liberals and Jews and Christians and Muslims and Buddhists, those who love God and those who have given up on God, regardless of whatever baggage or pain or suffering that you've brought with you, you are invited to the banquet because when God throws a party, he fills the hall. Friends, we're here today to remind each other of the saving grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're here to remind each other that God's grace is overwhelmingly sufficient to handle whatever pain, whatever sin that you lay at the foot of his cross. Paul tells us that when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning even though there was a time where it looked like you weren't invited to the party, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set them aside, nailing them to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, actually triumphing over them. The personal salvation offered through the death and resurrection of Christ cannot and should not be undercommunicated. But remember, the message that we bring to those streets is bigger than our own personal salvation. It's about the restoration of all things. That's the big picture of God's kingdom rule, setting the world right, and that even includes me and my sin. That's how we anticipate God's kingdom, by declaring to the world, even to the powers and authorities who shrugged off their own invitation to the party and maybe even murdered the messengers, that Jesus is Lord, accept no substitutes. We need to be clear. We need to be clear on that before we go to the next verse. Because the truth is, this is a mature text. Matthew has added a sequel to the story not found in, in Luke's account. When, if we wanted this parable to be about an all-inclusive wedding banquet in which God allows everyone's presence regardless of their circumstances, we might get troubled by the sequel. When the servants went out to the main streets and called you in, you may have been a tax collector or a sinner or a prostitute. Now you've entered the banquet hall and now you're a guest of the king. And that means something. It, it means something about your past, and it means something to your future. If you're going to be at God's party, then you need to be wearing the right clothes. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, interesting that he calls him friend, how did you get here, in here, without a, without a wedding robe, and he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, throw him out into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called and few are chosen. That justice, that 
is God's and God's alone, that comes to bear. I mean, where do you think everyone got their robes from? Slaves went out into the public square um, and brought all sort of people, good and bad, into the banquet hall. They must have been provided the proper robes when they entered the hall. They needed to change their clothes. And something of who they were, something of who they are, um, before they came in, needed to end. Putting on their wedding clothes meant that they needed to take off their clothes of sin and be clothed in the righteousness of the king. But the good news is that Jesus paid the price for your new wedding clothes. His work on the cross accomplished that completely. But you can't show up to the party and not wear the clothes. You can't be a Christian and not wear the robes of love and justice and truth and mercy and holiness and grace and peace. If you refuse to put them on, then apparently you have no business at God's party. If you refuse to put them on, then you're telling God that you don't really want to be at his party. And in the end of the story, it's pretty clear how God deals with sin. Jason and I were having coffee with Fleming Rutledge after her train came in last week, and I I had the chance to speak to her about this passage. She told me that she heard a lot of if-then statements in what I was saying, you know, if we're at God's party, then we should wear the right clothes. And she said, well, I'm from a Reformed tradition, and I want to make sure we're clear that that God does the work of clothing us. Okay, great. Yep, absolutely. And she said, I'd rather hear you say, because, therefore. Because God is throwing the party and has clothed the wedding robes and clothed me in wedding robes, therefore I should wear them and not take them off. Because Jesus has died for my sins and invited me into new life, I therefore should live a life worthy of that invitation. That we do on our knees. And there is that line, for many are called, but few are chosen. The slaves went out to the main streets and called everyone into the party, and the king then expected the guests to be wearing the robes that he provided. And there were consequences when they didn't. You may have accepted a gospel proclamation that told you that God loves you exactly the way you are, that he loves you because of his character, not yours. Absolutely. But it is wrong to expect to see the fruit. Is, but is it wrong to expect to see the fruit of Jesus' labors on the cross? The gospel is not God loves you exactly the way you are, so you stay that way, champ. No. The gospel is better than that. He loves you enough to reach you where you are, but refuses to allow you to stay that way. God loves you so much that he wants transformation for you, healing for you, change for you. Love wants the best for the beloved. Because when you embrace that sort of transformative love, you are truly anticipating God's kingdom and living as though it is at hand. And before we can put on new clothes, we need to take off the old ones. In order to move in that direction, we need to not be moving in other directions, right? We need to release the baggage of sin that has burned us, burdened us so heavily so that when we arrive at our destination, we arrive in proper fashion. Christmas, it's a story of where and who. We love the vision of the where being the sovereign rule 
of God's kingdom that will have the who being King Jesus, our Lord and Savior, ruling with redemptive, majestic love. And that's the real trick, isn't it? Because when he came on the scene, the where was a manger and the who was an infant child. Before we can land at that manger, we're going to need to make one more stop next Sunday and hear the call of repentance from John the Baptist. Let me pray. Thank you, good Father, for this work that you're doing, for this grace that you have shown to us. Thank you that whatever we are, whatever we were, whatever pain was in our past, your love is overwhelmingly sufficient to deal with it. And that means that we have not only the obligation, but the freedom to lay that baggage down that's weighing us down. It's unnecessary. And you say, come to me. Lay it down. Take up your cross. Put it to death. We just pray that you would guide us in that direction, that your Holy Spirit would awaken us to, to what you're doing. And call us to the repentance that we need to. As we continue in this um, Advent series, as we continue in the Advent season, as we move towards Christmas, we just pray that you would be a part of our actions, that you would be a part of our prayers, and you would be a part of our priorities. Lead us not into apathy or destruction, but lead us towards your kingdom. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray.